It began as a routine mission. There appears to be a massive displacement wave moving toward us. And it would change their destiny. Captain, there's something out there. Brace for impact. One crew and one ship's epic journey 70,000 light years away. We're on the other side of the galaxy. Now it's a quest to get back home. Why are you holding us here? See it from the beginning. We have no way back unless you send us. On the premiere of Star Trek Voyager. Welcome to Strange New Takes. I'm your host, Notch Karnick, and with me on the slowly disintegrating catwalk are... Emily Bowen-Marler. Rudy Kuspeker. Bill Woywad. We are Strange New Takes, which is a Star Trek-themed podcast, in case you hadn't figured that out. And it, while we're waiting for Strange New Worlds to premiere, which maybe that will happen like sometime in the foreseeable future, um, we're kind of tackling some old Trek as we wait for a new Trek to come out. Um, right now, we are in the midst of a series covering all of the pilots for the various Star Trek series. Today, we're excited to bring you our strange new takes for the episode, the opening episode of Star Trek Voyager Caretaker. And make sure to follow us on social media at Strange New Takes, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, tell your friends about the pod, because uh, we always love getting strange new listeners. Um, also, uh, you know, we really appreciate five-star ratings on iTunes that helps uh, new fans find us and discover the pod. So uh, take a minute and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you have been lost in the Delta Quadrant for 75 years <laughs> and have missed a lot of television and, and, and media and do not want to be spoiled, maybe, um, actually don't know, welcome back in that case. Um, but, but, uh, <laughs> but if you, if you have not watched Voyage, Voyager Caretaker and, and want to do so before listening to us, do so, otherwise jump in. All right. Well, this week, uh, as as Emily mentioned before, we're going to talk about the pilot of Star Trek Voyager named Caretaker. Uh, usually, sometimes we start with episode summaries, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to jump straight into our strange new takes. So who wants to go first and share their strange new take? You know, I don't know why I didn't share this last week, but um, so I have been a homeowner for like... I don't know, 11 years now. So I've had a lawnmower for 11 years and I've never gotten my lawnmower serviced because it would require putting it in my car and taking it someplace. And I just never did that. And so my lawnmower would just get harder and harder to start. Well, you know what I figured out? I could do it myself. And so last couple weekends ago, I changed my oil and I changed the blade and I changed the air filter and i figured out i didn't have to change the spark plug but i figured out how to disconnect it and i felt very proud of myself and i don't know why i didn't do it until the uh thing was 11 years old but hey you know you can always learn new things that save you a lot of money so i'd have to buy a new lawnmower <laughs> anyway and my strange new take for this episode is wow they needed a me too movement in the 90s <laughs> 
mean, Tom Paris. Oh, gross, 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 gross. <laughs> so, and I know that uh, Robert Duncan McDeal, I mean, he, there. I don't know if any of you listen to the Delta Flyers, but it's the podcast that he and Garrett Wong do. <laughs> he thinks he's pretty gross, too. He's like, why did they have me do it this way? <laughs> like, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, they needed some Me Too back then. Because I was going to start the hashtag fire Tom Paris, but no yeah. lieutenant for him. He's he's I have I my notes basically say Tom Paris is a creep. And that was mm-hmm. before he starts getting on with all the quote unquote Indian stuff. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right? I know. That's so bad. Chakotay. Yeah. Um, so bad. And, and, and the quote unquote is because. None of that is a Native American tradition that he talks about. Um, and anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll get there and talk about it. Okay, I'll jump in next. So uh, for like my whole adult life, I've had seasonal allergies, right? But every year I forget. And then I wake up someday in April and I like look like I've been pepper sprayed. My eyes are like puffy and red. I'm like, oh yeah. Um, <laughs> like, what is this? And I feel, am I like sick? Do I have a cold? Um, so anyway, (laughs) um, you know, I, for this episode, I hadn't watched it in years and I, you know, to be honest, I really enjoyed it. And I thought they did a really good job kind of creating an interesting premise and, you know, actually some, you know, you get to know the characters a little bit too, just in the, in the two part episode and, you know, what a contrast with how they executed across the whole rest of the series. I think they really, like under delivered on a, on a great premise. I have most of my lawn implements be electric devices with cords. And I'll just say this, they don't need to get serviced, but if you think if you have an electric mower, for example, and you're like, you know, all those jackasses that run over their same cords. Well, I'm smarter than that. No, you aren't. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's uh, let's let's see. I my opinions on this episode have been memorialized four years ago in a different thing that I recorded that maybe someday we'll share with all of you, dear listeners. Uh, by the way, Max and Diana aren't here today. They were on that recording as well. So maybe someday you can hear what they, they feel about Caretaker uh, if that episode comes out. But man, my opinions have changed in four years and I can't tell why. Maybe it's just like, you know, you watch these pilots an infinitesimal amount of times and you can have an infinitesimal amount of opinions on Star Trek and maybe that's the thing. You, you know, you watch an episode you don't like, like Move Along Home, Threshold from Voyager, um, that that super racist TNG episode. Maybe you just watch it enough, and one of those times you'll be like, oh yeah, I really like this episode, and the characters were great, and uh, man, those salamanders that Paris and Janeway turned into, that was a great idea. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess I'm just, my strange new take is I'm just surprised at how my opinions on this episode have changed somewhat over the years. Yeah. Um, my strange new take in carrying forward um, updates on the Mars helicopter launch. Um, just a quick update there. Bit of a delay. They were supposed to launch last weekend or early Monday last weekend. They had some uh, command sequencing issues. But just as problem solvers on on Voyager in Caretaker... 
the team with Bob Balram and, and everybody else solved the problems and they are looking to go um, early Monday morning. So again, fingers crossed. Let's hope that works out. Um, my strange new take on the episode. I've actually watched, I've been watching um, Voyager over the last two or three months as a slow rewatch on the beginning of season seven now. Um, so I went back and watched this one and I was actually watching it while gardening, if that's even possible. Um, so I almost watched half of um, the entire two-parter completely on audio. I don't know if that's a thing. And it was, it was, it was intriguing. It was interesting. I, I, even though I'd watched it before, maybe that helped me, you know, visualize what was, was happening because it seemed, um, seen it visually two three months ago but it was it was nice i don't know if people do that so um i i like the episode um i, I will compare and contrast it with some other um series later on um, later on but uh, i like the episode well we just jump straight into that point actually now because um we, we usually talk about how the well not usually last week we talked about how ds9 the stage was set for ds9 i think with voyager we need to do that again because when Voyager came out, TNG had just ended and there was room for another Star Trek show in, in the schedule. However, DS9's ratings weren't impressive. And so a lot of the 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 stakes for um for Voyager were that it had to fix the problems with DS9. And so it was created in the shadow of DS9, let's say. Um, again, you know, we talked about how last week DS9 was set on a stationary ship because they couldn't have two ships wandering around the galaxy. Well, now with TNG having ended, we can have Voyager end up zooming off. And it was actually a TNG idea that teed off the creation of this story. Mm. That's interesting. I guess I guess it 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 makes sense to well the long voyage back home theme um does work in terms of um having the audience empathize with the crew and and you know follow them on their journey and and we had we had two different crews here that were forced together uh, through circumstances and all that fun stuff um I, I am again biased towards Voyager because it's the it's the only series I completely watched um, sequentially. As I was growing up, the others were bits and pieces here and there, and so that's what happened with me. Um, yeah, I think I think it worked. I think that whole voyage home um, approach worked for me. And, um, and just 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 to interrupt real quick, essentially what we're saying here is that. TNG has like, you know, the Enterprise is like tossed into another time dimension, tossed into a different place by Q or whatever. The producers of Voyager was like, what if they don't get back by the end of the episode? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I know we've done um, Battlestar comparisons before. And so Battlestar is similar, but you are sort of kicked out of your current home and trying to find another home that you hope exists and have sort of followed in myth, but have never really been there. So this is slightly different. This is unique in that sense. And I, I, I kind of liked it. 
and and I'll just draw a parallel. It was it wasn't in my case um, when I was watching it growing up, but I'll draw a parallel for a lot of people around the world. And there's a lot of expats living in different countries. Um, don't get to travel home as often. COVID's been a thing as well. I, I think there's a lot to relate to there. I mean, the time frames and the distances obviously are fairly exaggerated, but I I, I like that. Uh, I like that approach. You know, it was, um, <clears throat> I, I find it interesting, like, so I'm, I'm just reading through some of this and it's talking about, um, you know, really wanting to establish characters right away. One thing I did notice that, uh, that Voyager did that I think DS9 did well also, I think they both did it better than, um, than TNG was, I, I felt like the, the actors had a good sense of who their characters were. Like, I don't really feel that there's, too much change from how they were in this episode mm-hmm. to how they, even though there's, there's character growth for sure. Cause you have seven seasons, but it, it didn't feel like it didn't feel jarring. Like, um, uh, enter and counter at far point felt, you know, that one felt a little jarring. Um, but I, I don't know it. I can totally see how this was kind of taking on some of the TNG ideas, but you know, ending it differently. Um, or not ending it, I guess, as the case may be, their journey continues. But um, it totally felt like Encounter at Farpoint. Like so many beats in this episode felt very similar. And I know last week Dinah was talking about DS9's pilot being very similar to Encounter at Farpoint. And I didn't actually experience that at all with um, DS9 and TNG because DS9 was kind of set... It, one of the things that was different about DS9, it was set within this political intrigue. Um, you know, I mean, we had this really, um, uh, you know, we had a planet and a society coming out of a really terrible time. And the station was going to be in the midst of that and walking them through that because they were going to be stationary. Right. And so that's kind of, you know, it was totally different from the others. And so not only is Voyager kind of going back to what TNG did with the ship going to different planets every week and, you know, kind of more in, uh, uh, contained, ep- self-contained episodes, um, but it also just like the alien being on an array and then the alien being the space station or the, the encounter at Farpoint Station. Or, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. there just seemed to be so many things that were parallel between TNG and Voyager. Like, hey, 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 we're just like TNG. Don't you want to watch us? Don't you want this to be your new <laughs> Star Trek show? You know? There was definitely um, accelerated pressure-driven problem solving, right? That, that's the common theme in both. Um, and I, I, I do feel some similarities from a DS9 perspective, um, in terms of Starfleet coming in, being, quote-unquote, the the better, more advanced, cleaner race, right? They, they show, they introduce Neelix as this, um, you know, scrambling, tumbling scavenger. The Kazons are, you know, quote-unquote, dirty, savage people as well. Literally, when they're showing the Kazon and Janeway, the contrast is insane, right? Janeway is clean, well-tied hair, the Kazon are kind of crazy. Uh, out of place. <laughs> Sorry, I've... the Kazons just make me laugh. Yeah, it's 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 too extreme, right, to portray people yep. like that. And they continue to sort of have that negative effect throughout the um, early season or two, I, I guess, early seasons. Um, and it's... I, what DS9 does is it, it gives a little more depth to the other side of the Federation 
right, well, the other perspective outside of the Federation, Voyager doesn't do that so much. Um, Voyager, I mean, it's also explicitly reading about some of the creation of the show. There's a ton of backstory, by the way. Like, there's a blow-by-blow of how this script was written on Memory Alpha. Like, Jerry Taylor's notes from this date say that these were the characters she wanted to make and blah, blah, blah. And it's it's interesting, but it's very thorough. Let me put it that way. I think the one thing that I picked out of that that was interesting is so Michael Pillar, who created Deep Space Nine, also had a big role in creating Voyager, along with Jerry Taylor and Rick Berman. Brandon Braga, who would later run the show with Rick Berman, uh, actually was on vacation, so he didn't have much input into the writing of this particular script. And one of the things Michael Pillar wanted to do was make this into kind of a action-adventure show. They felt that they'd got burned with Deep Space Nine's kind of highfalutin philosophy and kind of its its uh, tone. And so they, they wanted Voyager to be like a rock'em, sock'em adventure. I just think... So just personally, when I, when I think about that, I, I, I think they picked the wrong theme, though, for that. Like a ship zooming through... Space, it's such a compelling human journey in terms of like its character development, the toll that that journey home takes on on the crew that I don't think it'll, I mean, sure, it lends itself to some adventure, but I think the, the more compelling aspect of that is is the, the human impact of, of that journey. And I think that because they wanted to take Voyager off into this more adventure-based direction, it, it really let down that that more human side of, of things. Um and before I read this, I had no idea that that desire to be more more adventure based was this early on in the show. I think that I, I used to think it was just something that they like fumbled into, but turns out it was an explicit choice from the beginning, which I think just misaligned a little bit with that. But I don't know if y'all agree with me on that one. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's kind of a mismatch with the the setting and the plot. Yeah. Um, the the other thing that I should mention in terms of Deep Space Nine was that. They really wanted um, this show to to have to be kind of bright, optimistic, kind of everyone's happy and less of the like dark, brooding Deep Space Nine tone of intrigue that, that that show had. So one of the like unfortunate effects of that, which I think I, I think is one of my least favorite aspects of this episode and going forward is that they wanted everybody in a Starfleet uniform by the end of this episode. They didn't want those Maki rubber tube things, <laughs> which, by the way, why are the Maki wearing a whole bunch of rubber tubes? Like, are, are they are they like some sort of force? Like, are they like conducting something through those tubes? Is there like little chocolates in there that they're like mm, battles hard? <laughs> like, I I don't I don't get that costume choice. But anyway, uh, they they're all out of those uniforms. Everyone's wearing their nice little you know I mean yeah they're Maki rank pips, but they're still wearing rank pips. They're in Starfleet uniforms like. Chakotay in particular, dude who, like, turned his back on the Maquis is now suddenly, like, happily in a Starfleet uniform sitting on the bridge of a, of a, of a Starfleet ship. And that, that, that all of that was done to make sure that it didn't have too dark of a tone uh, on the series. Well, it makes it feel kind of like it's doing that uh, throwback to more the Gene Roddenberry vision of Starfleet. They all get along, like, the conflict can't be within the crew or among the crew, the conflict has to be coming from the alien species that they encounter or, you know, um, so it kind of feels like a throwback to that as well. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, that's, that's fine. 
right, if they want to take that tone. But then why do the thing with the Maquis, right? It's like right. the most interesting thing about the crew is that there is this potential for tension and conflict, and then they just, like, get rid of it after the first episode. They bring it back a few times, but it's well, ha- not... Halfway- yeah, but yeah, not they yeah. don't they don't bring it back. They kind of ignore it though for like at least the, half of the first season. You know what I mean? It's like they they kind of put it on the back burner and then they I think they might have an episode at some point later in first season and they have an episode or two in uh the second season that kind of, you know, there's some the like things start to get like little betrayals happen because of some of the Maquis wanting to make different decisions in order to get them home. Yeah, yeah I think for- they were dealing with a lot um, in that first episode, right? And they could have chosen not to have that Maquis angle at all, but it would have, I guess, made it very one dimensional. I-, I think they were trying to show that if you if you put people in a highly complicated, high-pressure situation where, you know, survival is important, our differences fall apart. And I, I guess that came across as a little too quick and sudden, but I, I feel there's some nobility in that. Um, yeah, they could have kept the Maquis in, in separate uniforms and have had them, you know, like, quote-unquote, Paris-style observer status without without Starfleet um, designations. Um but again, the Maquis, wh- why did they get created, right? They were losing their land um, to a battle or a conflict they didn't want to be a part of. Um, and they were essentially scrambling here as well. So I, I don't think Chakotay had any other options. He could have, well, he could have, he could have maintained separation on Janeway's um, um, uh, crew. It would have just made for, I guess, too much complication. I think they were trying to show unity and then they brought up the whole Seska plot later on as well. So maybe they dabbled in it and they didn't do it quite right. I I think there was a noble intention though there. Seska being the the Maki crew member who, spoiler alert, turns into a turncoat (laughs) and uh, betrays Voyager to the Kazon later. Well, was like always a turncoat, right? I mean, don't you right. essentially find out she was not? She was a Cardassian who was undercover as a Bajoran. And, you know, right, so. right, right, but, right. You know, one thing I found really interesting at the time when the show came out was how they um, tied the Maquis throughout all three series. So there's an episode or two of. Um, uh, I think at least two episodes of Next Generation that deal with the Maquis. There is a two-parter episode of Deep Space Nine that is the Maquis part one and part two, I think. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, And those were all to set the stage for Voyager, right? But it was just, that was also kind of cool as they had this, you know, they were kind of building something in universe among multiple shows and then they just kind of let it fizzle. They still deal with it a little bit in Deep Space Nine and they're able to reference that in later episodes of Voyager when the Voyager crew finds out what happens to their Maquis comrades. And um, so, I, I mean, it was kind of an interesting idea that they, tr- they I felt like they were really trying to do some more developing with it, but then they just, they just kind of let it go. This was, I think, the most shocking thing that I, I heard when I was researching for this episode of the podcast was that the Maquis were created for Voyager. I thought the Maquis had been on DS9 and TNG and so then Voyager, like took him on as a convenient plot device. In fact, 
Voyager created them and then DS9 and TNG did them a favor by introducing them so they didn't have to spend this episode being like, you know, Chakotay being like, and let me tell you about the Maki. Here's a bunch of exposition and explanation. <laughs> um, so, so essentially those episodes, which I think, honestly, if I remember correctly, if I, I've watched all these episodes... The TNG and DS9 treatment of the Maki is much more compelling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and isn't that, doesn't Ro end up joining the Maki? Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, so it's, yeah, I mean, they were good episodes. And so it, that's what is kind of disappointing because they did this, you know, they really tried to build up this thing and then, <laughs> yeah, I don't know, it just kind of went away. Yeah. Well, uh, let's let's keep moving on. So that that's kind of the, the the setup for this. Basically, we have this ship which we wanted to have an action adventure romp that is brighter, more optimistic. Yet at the same time, it's really depressing. There's seventy thousand light years from home, uh, and and there are these two crews. They've been brought together. Everyone's wearing a Starfleet uniform by the end. That was the goal uh, of of putting together this episode. The summary of this episode, basically, and I'm going to I'm gonna just try to do it myself and not read out the memory alpha, is that Voyager is on a mission to catch this Maquis ship. It is pulled into the Delta Quadrant because the caretaker wants to have sex. And the caretaker then abducts two crew members, one from each ship. Uh, and then the Maquis and, and the uh, Starfleet ship have to cooperate to retrieve their crew member and thus setting off on a journey 70,000 light years back home. Uh, along the way, they pick up this really irritating dude who they should have really left behind and his girlfriend. Uh, so, yeah, okay, that's, so that, that's a summary. How did I do? Good enough? Pretty good. All right. I, I don't know when we get the Neelix, but hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna stick, to uh, stick out a limb for him. I'm gonna, uh, <laughs> First you defend, defend Wesley and now Neelix? What is wrong <laughs> with you? Hey, you know what? This means you have a thing for the underdog. That's kind of nice, you know? There you go. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, um, what what did y'all think of the 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 story in this episode? Yeah, I think we spoke about it a little bit earlier as well. Problem solving. Um, I I honestly feel. Well, I'm trying to compare it to the Discovery uh, season three latter half when you know they're they're going to that planet and trying to find out how the burn started and. There's there's that sense of intrigue and mystery and discovery um, of of what the cause was and you know that that weird moving creature and and those holograms, um, I I, f I feel and again again this may be a bias I feel Voyager just did a better job of building up the anticipation connecting different um, um, clues on what was going on and Tuvok kind of put it together at the end. Um, I personally felt they did a better job than Discovery did towards the, um, you know, uh, finding out the, the true reason for the burn. Um, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, th um, I mean, I hadn't made that comparison to Discovery Season 3, but the execution on Discovery is all, has always been kind of problematic. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know, they, they did a good job kind of with the origin story at the beginning and Janeway has to go get Paris and, you know, you see Kim and Quarks, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, they were presented with this cool mystery or this cool dilemma, right? Like this kind of inscrutable, you know, really powerful alien 
um, that they're trying to understand. And then there's the, you know, the whole dynamic with the, the I guess, the, the adventure. So having to go down to the Okaba city and deal with the Kazon and whatever. Um, and, you know, I thought it, I thought it was well paced. I thought it was fun. Um, and you even get a little bit of those character dynamics. So I thought this, this stuff with um, Paris and Chakotay was really good, actually. And then Paris ends up you know, rescuing him. And, and then he says some racist stuff, which I didn't like, but, um, but I, th- I thought that was a nice character moment. And you even get a hint of the, um, the Neelix Tuvok dynamic mm-hmm. that continues mm-hmm. throughout the, the series. Um, we, we, there, there certainly yeah. wasn't as much, I am this character and here's my backstory yeah. exposition. There was some, and in my notes, I actually wrote like, Dinah really probably didn't like Paris's monologue about Chakotay when they're in New Zealand. <laughs> But uh, there's less of that than the emissary. Well, you know, something I remember about what, so I, I don't know. Did you all watch this when it first aired? Like, I don't know if that, okay. So I watched this when it first aired. I was, this is the first Star Trek series that I watched from beginning to end as it was unfolding on TV. And um, it was traumatizing because you have your chief engineer is dead. Your first officer is dead. The pilot is dead. The doctor is dead. I mean, like, so all of these characters that are for, you know, your previous Star Trek iterations, those have been core characters in the show and they're all dead was really traumatic. (laughs) It's kind of like, um, yeah. And so, I mean, even though you don't have any, uh, emotion so much about them, maybe the one you, you feel some empathy for the pilot that, um, that, Paris hit on because he was such a creep but um but the rest of them you hardly get you know you just get kind of a little tiny bit of an introduction to them and you could tell they all hate Paris you know which you know kind of I did too right at the beginning but um but yeah it's really dark to have all those characters dead like within the first 30 minutes of the episode this didn't occur to me when I was watching it but I think you just raised a good point which is that Janeway apparently picked these people right the captain picks her officers she doesn't really spend a lot of time being like, oh, shit, Cavett died. That guy, that doctor, he died too. My chief engineer's dead. Like, there's no moment of like, ah, oh, fuck. Like, these people had lives and families and stuff. There's no, forget from her, anybody else even. Like, there's no moment of acknowledging that that deep tragedy has occurred. But she kind, kind of weird. She kind of does that with Harry, though, which is strange. Because, like... When Harry is then the only one that's not returned to the ship after they are, you know, after they were all taken to the array, she's like, oh, I, I need to get to know my crew better. You know, like his mother called me and, and but so he, he doesn't even die, but he's the only character that she shows that kind of emotion about. Well, none of their mothers called, so. Cavett's <laughs> <laughs> uh, mother is like, I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> He's just a dick to all these like sympathetic people in Star Trek pilots. And so I'm glad he's out of here. Uh, Which, by the way, speaking of which, this is one of the most interesting things, like thinking about Voyager later. We never come back to Stadi Cavett and that doctor guy. Forget, I mean, the chief engineer doesn't even get a name in this episode. Neither does the doctor, but at least we see the doctor, the chief medical Mm -hmm. officer. But we never have like a, a... the throwback episode where we meet these guys again, which is incredibly odd to me because they were, first of all, Alicia Coppola, who plays Stadi, went on to have like a major career after this. So she's a great actress that they could have brought back. Uh, the 
Roger Denar, by the way, plays the chief medical officer. I don't know if you all noticed that the, the medical officer, Jeff McCarthy, uh, who yeah. plays super soldier Roger Denar, the greatest villain in Star Trek, according to Lower Decks. Um, and Cavett is also played by... Um, I've, I've written his name down here. Oh, yeah. Um, Scott Jake, who plays the, the politician in The Inner Light in TNG, one of the greatest episodes yeah. of Star Trek. So these are all powerful actors who have played pivotal characters in Star Trek before. And Fun fact, I saw Jeff McCarthy play Javert in Les Miserables in Los Angeles. Sorry. That's mm, <laughs> his claim to fame for me. Anyway, I was like, I know him. I saw him on stage. Anyway. They, they could have had a musical episode I of know. Voyager and they didn't. Um, maybe he yeah, could have like, broken time. out in song before he died. <laughs> but he didn't. Out in the darkness. No, he could have sung stars. We, it would have been perfect. Anyway. I, dear listener, poor Emily is not going to be here next week. with bro- When we talk about oh. Enterprise's Broken Bone, we could have had her do a rendition of Where My Heart Will it's Take Me. It's been a long and road. No, I, it really yeah, I got has. it in there. It really has. <laughs> really has but uh anyway just just but again just just wanted to put out there that these characters played by great actors never come back and they're mm-hmm. all dead and we barely acknowledge it kind of sad you know do you think the show the pilot tries uh, to get us to build a negative opinion about them with that whole trying to influence kim thing um about paris and then just sort of <laughs> does away with them as a quick reaction <laughs> It, that's not karma, but an attempt. That's I don't know. Dark. <laughs> yeah. No, I, th- I think you're. I think you're right, Rudy. I mean, I don't know if they intended it in that way, but of course, that you know, it would have been more compelling actually if they made the characters likable, right, and then killed them, or it would have been more emotionally resonant. But it's easier to to you know make them unlikable and then kill them. And I don't. I don't know if it's that they deserved it, but it's. I think it's just more convenient <laughs> for the writers. <laughs> I mean, in my head canon, it is Roger Denar as like, a, a, you know, he's got a disguise and he's like just waiting for his <laughs> moment to have revenge on Starfleet. So it's good he died. Otherwise, Voyager could have had problems. You know, <laughs> you know you're talking about um, uh, Janeway picking these characters. One thing I thought they did well in this episode that they did better than Deep Space Nine was so you have two characters in this uh, pilot who have a an established relationship before, and that would be Janeway and Tuvok. And they did that really well. Like I felt that um, the interaction between Tuvok and Janeway in her ready room, um, when he says to her, you know, you need to, you need to sleep. Like you can't, you can't be the captain that the ship needs if you're exhausted or they just, I don't know. It just felt natural the way they interacted with each other. Whereas with Dax and Cisco, it felt, I, I don't know. It, it just felt, it didn't, it, that one wasn't as successful. I feel like they did a better job with this, with these two. It, there's, uh, this is more of a production note to my co-hosts here, but I actually had thought we were going to talk about the characters in a separate section, but now I think that that doesn't really make any sense. So just scroll down in your notes and you'll see a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff about the characters because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into it right now. It's my fault. Uh, I keep bringing up the characters. <laughs> yeah, no, but let's keep doing that as we go through the story because I think the thing about... Let's talk about Janeway first because I think... You, the, Absolutely. Compelling connection to Tuvok. And I think one of the things that Voyager really nailed, which I don't think DS9 quite got right for a little bit, is who their captain was. Um, I think Avery Brooks did a great job of of portraying Cisco, but I think it takes a while for us to really understand who he is um, going through that series. And I think he, he really comes into his own a little bit later on. Whereas I think 
you get hints of six season Janeway right away. That conversation with Mark, which is, mm-hmm. you know, you, you get her being like this, like, you know, really great captain right away. You know, when that, that slow pan up to her at the penal colony, like what an introduction to a captain, first of all. And then you get the scene with her and Paris and Kim uh, kind of, uh, you know, she's like, at ease before you break something. She, yeah. You know, she's, she's got that gravitas of a captain. But then you see also her tenderness when she's talking mm-hmm. about Mark, which, again, that would have been great to have more Mark because that was so, that, that one scene conveyed so much emotion. Mm-hmm. Well, and I loved how she was able to switch between the two really easily, too. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, uh, I just, I thought they did a great job as far as showing, like, like, here's how a, a woman being captain can be different. And that's kind of, I felt like that's kind of what they were trying to do. Like, just trying to show, like, the a whole bunch of different facets um, to her character. And not, I'm sorry, but a lot of times when um, TV shows have strong women characters, they make them jerks. Because they don't, it's kind of that whole thing where, you know, men can be um, assertive, but women are aggressive. But it's like TV shows so often, especially TV shows in the 90s, and the ones that come to mind would be the way they first start out portraying Kira, the way they portray Bolana. And they did this with um, characters. I don't know if any of you watched Sequest. They did it with some of the female characters in Sequest as well, where they're just so grating because they just don't know how to write women. And they think the way you have to write strong women is to make them be jerks. And that's... That's I know lots of strong women who are not jerks. And so um, so that I, I really appreciated that they were they had the ability to be a little more nuanced with Captain Janeway. And um, sorry, go ahead, Rudy. Is this the most um, racially diverse main main bridge crew outside of maybe even Discovery? Because you're talking about Tuvok, um, Chakotay, Kim, Balana. Um, I'm I'm only catching Janeway, and, and she's you know, first captain is a woman. It may be, keeping, especially keeping, if you're thinking uh, of alien races as well. If you yeah, I think they're trying to they, they club the alien with the um ra- racial differences mm-hmm. like Tuvok and Black and Belana and and Hispanic and Klingon, mm-hmm. uh, but outside of Dom, th- there isn't anybody else, right? Um, this is the Doctor, obviously, but I mean. So I think Deep Space Nine actually, if you, I mean, if you look at their recurring cast and stuff like that, I think they they should probably get the nod for that. Um, but I think Voyager does a good job of introducing mm-hmm. diversity. Bill, you were going to say something there. No. Um, well, one other thing that I want to point out: How many of you have watched the video of Genevieve Bujold being Janeway? Yeah, I've do you, it. do all of you know this story already? No, I'm seeing I'm seeing a head shake or two. Um, Emily knows what I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. Genevieve Bujold was a famous is a famous uh, film actress, and she was cast as Janeway without a screen test. Wow, did that turn out to be a mistake? Because she was, if you there for many years, there were only like rumors of what had happened there and like people's narratives, and we, no one had seen any footage. But when the Voyager DVDs came out there was finally the footage of she had shot in two days of filming before she was replaced, uh, was put onto the DVD as an extra. And, I mean, no disrespect to her capability as an actress, but she was very wrong for Janeway because it was like kind of this wooden performance. Mm -hmm. Very flat. That's a great word for it. Mm -hmm. And she was, 
essentially what happened is she realized she was wrong for the role and then there was kind of a combination of her leaving and, and being let go uh, it ended not kind of acrimoniously as far as i know but <laughs> then they went back to kate Mulgrew, who had been screen tested and brought her in uh, i encourage everybody listening to this to go watch the genevieve bourgeois kind of version of january it's a very different character uh and yeah it, it wouldn't it wouldn't be great uh and and the other thing that happened was that when Kate Mulgrew joined the cast, apparently the camaraderie of the cast kind of bloomed and they started becoming kind of this cool unit. Whereas Bujol used to like go back to her trailer after filming was done and there wasn't kind of any mixing uh, of with the cast. And so this is one more story of the captain kind of setting the tone for the, the crew, even outside of the like story of the ship. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, let's take a quick break here because we're right around where I think we should take one and then we can come back, talk more about characters, rest of the story and any feelings we have about the rest of the Voyager uh, series based on this pilot. The Cardassians gave us the last known heading of the Maquis ship and we have charts of the plasma storm activity the day it disappeared. With a little help, we might be able to approximate its course. I'd guess they were trying to get to one of the M-class planetoids in the Terrakov belt. That's beyond the Mariah system. And the plasma storms would have forced them in this direction. Adjust our course to match. Aye, Captain. The Cardassians gave us the last known heading of the Maquis ship, and we have charts of the plasma storm activity the day it disappeared. With a little help, we might be able to approximate its course. I'd guess they were trying to get to one of the M-class planetoids in the Terrakov belt. That would take them here. And the plasma storms would have forced them in this direction. Adjust our course to match. Aye, Captain. The Cardassians claim they forced the Maquis ship into a plasma storm where it was destroyed. But our probes haven't picked up any debris. The plasma storm might not leave any debris. We'd still be able to pick up a resonance trace from the warp core. The Cardassians claim they forced the Maquis ship into a plasma storm where it was destroyed. But our probes haven't picked up any debris. The plasma storm might not leave any debris. We'd still be able to pick up a resonance trace from the warp core. Welcome back to Strange New Takes. We're talking about the story of Caretaker with a, with a little bit of a dip into, into characters. Um, I know we mentioned before that uh, characters in this aren't as... We, we don't learn about them from direct exposition of the characters as much. I think there still is some. I think Tom Paris is maybe the most egregious example of, of that. Mm-hmm. When you just get all these, uh, yeah. When we see, it seems to me that we get the most backstory about Tom Paris of any of the characters. Like we, and we get it. It's kind of sprinkled throughout, but you know, I told you you were going to find out why, you know, why you weren't supposed to hang out with me, and you know, anyway, yeah. like it's just he he is he's basically a rewrite of Nick Lacarno from the TN from TNG. Uh, it's a Wesley episode where Wesley and his, his cadet friends, they have an accident, they cover it up, somebody's died, and they wanted Nick Locarno to be in Voyager, but they didn't want to pay royalties to the guy who wrote like Nick Locarno, so they had to recreate him. The significant difference between the two is that Paris has confessed to his role in the accident, whereas Locarno never And he killed more people. Did. Yes. More people died, and was it four people died? Like all the other people that were in the um, training exercise or whatever died. Yeah. Is what that's the feeling I got. 
Which is, yeah, I mean, that's a, and, and he's written as basically like Star Trek Han Solo, except they fail miserably because they kind of make him a creep and racist, which is not great. He, de- yeah, he definitely the, gets better anyway. Yeah, I, you know, I had forgotten that they portray Paris in this way in the, in the pilot and it, he's so like bitter and so much more of like a, a rebel and kind of a malcontent than he is during most of the series. I mean, he's kind of like a, a good guy, you know, like a guy you can count on, a bro, and, you know. Uh, and I can't make up my mind if I think that's appropriate, because they are trying to show a transformation and a growth there happening with the character. But it seemed like a little bit too much. And I don't, and I think there might have been issues with uh, Robert Duncan McNeil's acting also in the beginning. I don't know if it was that good, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and and I think uh, the, 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 the thing that I think is most interesting is that I think in, in trying to make him seem bad, but like redeemable, I think they make him just too bad in general. I think they, they don't they don't make him as like redeemable, uh, that that element of it doesn't come out as much. I think the one place it does work a little bit is his attitude with Harry. Well, you know, it's kind of like in uh, Encounter at Farpoint with Picard. I thought that Patrick Stewart felt really uncomfortable when he was being the jerk captain. You know, like when he was being such a... Anyway, it just, it felt uncomfortable. Like it didn't feel like Patrick Stewart played those parts as well. And Patrick Stewart is a phenomenal actor, obviously, but, um, and uh, no offense to Robert Duncan McNeil, but he's a better actor than Robert Duncan McNeil. But I feel like Robert Duncan McNeil does better when he's not trying to do that bad boy. The bad boy stuff is the stuff that feels really just like, oh, it just doesn't feel natural. You know, I mean, it doesn't, it just doesn't feel right the way he plays it. So... Well, and the broadcast version actually didn't have that scene with Shadi in the shuttle. Like, that wasn't in the episode. Good for them. They should have left it out. God, it's so bad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It is, um, I mean, don't treat your co-workers as as sex objects. So gross, so gross. Yeah. also, somewhere along the way, the the I think the Voyager writers found the note from that is taped at the top of the Star Trek writer's room where they're like, Indian people, don't like give them any proper culture. And then they misinterpreted that to mean Native Americans. Uh, <laughs> and, and so they were like, oh, yeah, we just got to make up this Indian character who has no relationship to any sort of actual Native American tribe. <laughs> Uh, which, by the way, this is, you know, while we're on character stopping, let's talk for a second about Chakotay. I think it's interesting having a guy who's, like, been a, a, a model Starfleet officer and then turn. That's a great concept. What they messed up was they went to this guy who was, I, I think, Bill, have you mentioned this story in a previous episode of this podcast about the guy that they tapped to, to create the Chakotay character? Uh, I think I've mentioned it. Yeah. Is it like, yeah. To, uh, Jamaki Walker. He's like a giant fraud. Yeah. So, so can, can you can you say a little bit more about that again? I, I'm so, not so sure I know the details. Guy, they, so they hired like an advisor on like Native American culture and customs um, throughout Voyager. I think he was involved and they hired this guy. I think his name was Jamaki Walker. I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, 
And this guy had he was you know a self-professed uh, expert, Native American, an expert in Native American culture. And uh, it turned out you know he was a fraud. He's really a Jewish guy from Brooklyn. Uh, seriously, and it was just all made wow. up. Wow, it was just completely made up. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, and this is I mean going to be something that uh, Jamaki Highwater was his. Uh, uh. Uh, a Zoom name. He was born Jackie Marks. And um, yeah, I mean, this is going to be a recurring issue with Voyager going throughout, which is Chakotay is going to have this like, you know, very like built out Indian heritage. And it's going to be complete bullshit. And there's going to be actual uh, folks who, who have, who are part of one tribe or another being like, this is junk. Like there's nothing here that res res resembles anything related to any actual tribe. And I think that in a way, looking back on that, there's a line that Chakotay has here, which is like where he says wrong tribe, which now is hilarious in retrospect. <laughs> um, because with Paris is basically making all these allusions to like, Indian like can't you be a bird and fly away blah 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 which is like super incredibly racist again that's from Forrest Don't, Gump God <laughs> guy you wait, know it's like that's do, not even do not make fun of your co-workers cultures uh, mm. you know don't do that but um, anyway I yeah go ahead Oh, no, I was going to say, I do think um, so totally separate from uh, his fraudulent uh, background which isn't Chakotay's fault right you know they hired the wrong guy for the for the consulting but um I do like and I'm trying to to decide if I made this up or if it's because like meaning whether I saw this really in the pilot or if it's because I see it so much in the rest of the series um there really is good chemistry between uh Janeway and Chakotay I feel like, and and I was looking to see if that makes an appearance in that in this pilot episode, and I think it does a little bit. Like, just I don't know, because so I know, like I'm jumping to a later episode when they have that the one where they're stranded on the planet, and you find out that Chakotay essentially is in love with Janeway. But what he talks about, like what his first impression of her was, and so I was watching this episode trying to see if maybe they were playing for that. You know what I mean? If they were trying, if the actors were trying to infuse some of that, cause you definitely, I don't know if you all felt that I always wanted Janeway and Chakotay to get together. And I felt like the actors played it that way. Like they, they were just very flirty with each other and they don't have too much time to interact in this first episode. But, um, I mean, he pretty easily falls in line with what she wants to do. Um, and, and that know. would have been a great if we had that scene between them and then that's how he decides to put on the uniform. That would have been mm -hmm. really compelling, I feel like. It would have been. Um, I think the one person who Janeway has chemistry with this episode is Tom Paris, <laughs> which is also, it's funny because uh, Robert Duncan McLean and Kate Mulgrew's trailers were next to each other. So they like chummed it up a bunch when this was being filmed. But I feel like he hits on her when they first meet at that penal well, because colony. Because he hits on everyone. Yeah, yeah, he totally true. does. He totally hits on her. Like, he's just he's... smarmy the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Um, it would have been interesting if he'd hit on Quark, too. But mm -hmm. uh, also, did you notice that Don Paris is having a drink with Morn in Quark's bar? Yeah, uh, I didn't notice that, no. <laughs> yeah, Morn is, you see the back of Morn and Don Paris standing there having his drink. That's uh, awesome. But yeah, but anyway, uh, Robert Beltran, who plays Chakotay, actually accepted this role and he was the last person to be cast. Um, 
he accepted the role because Janine Bujol was going to be the captain and he was excited to work with her. So he mm-hmm. was kind of disappointed when uh, when she left, actually. Interesting. Kind of interesting. But um, yeah, he was, I mean, I think the writers just knew that he was going to be with Seven of Nine right at the beginning. I mean, it, oh, you see the so seeds gross. of that in, in the pilot. So. No, no. Oh my gosh, that made me so mad. <laughs> it's like, let's just take the two best looking people on the show who are a man and a woman and make them be a couple randomly for no reason. I was like... Okay, yeah, I know he's the best-looking man on the show, but come on. Anyway. All right, all right. We, we'll, we'll return to characters. We really should talk <laughs> about the plot a little bit, though, um, which is, you know, again, the caretaker wants to have sex, so he's bringing all of these, like, ships, which we hear Neelix say that there are 50 ships that have been brought over during the span of several months. Uh, they apparently all are shown, a, when, when the crew is beamed over to the array, they're shown a hologram of what makes them comfortable, but somehow there's... You know, the crew of the Voyager has Confederate fantasies, uh, so they're taken back to the South, oh. <laughs> uh, where the caretaker is playing, like, a banger on the banjo. Like, uh, <laughs> At least they didn't have happy enslaved people dancing around, so, you know, I mean, they could have been worse. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's just a bee, right? Like, they call it, right? The, the, what, what is the bee? They, they call it a bee. I don't know if that's a thing. Like, she's like, hey, it's hard to get y'all out or something like that. And we're having a bee. I guess that's some kind of gathering. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know enough about the South to to uh, to, 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 to tell you. Um, it's I, benign to me, though. Did, did, I mean... Yeah, no, I'm just making jokes. <laughs> yeah, just, just, uh, just to clarify. <laughs> I think we, yeah. need to, we need to hire an expert consultant. Explain Southern uh, culture to us. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can be an expert on the American South. I've grown up there, right? <laughs> uh, but then from the South, we go into a medical scene where everybody's in this extremely uncomfortable position. So I think something that we don't talk about enough in human culture is the fact that when you're sleeping or unconscious, your body shape can cause shit tons of problems for you and like especially i mean this is true i had a friend who was in the hospital incapacitated for several weeks recently and he was talking about how he had sores from the position he was in and if you see those voyager people they they're being back to the ship three days later it's established in the episode but when you see them in the array unconscious they all have their arms behind them that puts a tremendous amount of stress on the shoulders to the point where they would have all, when they got woke up, been like, ow, it just moved my arms. It just dawned on me. Was it like a Jesus reference? You know, they're all laying there with their arms kind of like this, and then three days later, they end up awake on the ship. <gasps> Holy shit! Mind blown. Oh, my God. Um, Kit Mulgrew. Yeah. I mean, who, which one of them, if we had a, a messianic figure in the Voyager cast, who would it, it is, be? Chakotay, it is not sure. Tom Paris, let me tell you. <laughs> for, for, for sure, Neelix. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, anyway, so then uh, Janeway has her orgasm as the pin goes in there. Harry Kim has his, has his blood-curdling scream. And that's when, uh, basically, after that, Harry Kim and Balana wake up. Sorry, Baylana, sister of Beyonce, wakes up in <laughs> in the Los Angeles Convention Center, which is where they filmed the Ocampa scenes. I thought the least compelling piece of this episode was the Ocampa. They're just, you know, a, they're just your basic like Star Trek 
alien species. There's very little compelling about them other that other than the fact that they are only alive for nine years and yet somehow aren't children mentally. Um, which good thing for Neelix, otherwise he'd be a super creepy guy, uh, right? But um, I I just didn't enjoy anything about the Okampa. Like they didn't flesh them out. They just like there's one scene where a bunch of them are watching like scenes of clouds and like there's just nothing about them that's that you that you can hang with you know yeah yeah they were just kind of like generic rubber forehead aliens although they did you guys notice their sweet covid masks oh my gosh they didn't wear them very well i kept i was like put that over your nose you're letting your (laughs) nose escape the mask (laughs) yes i did notice that (laughs) that's how the pandemic started the caretaker sent us an infected person from a starship um (laughs) but um yeah, so, so we see the, the stuff on the planet, and then the Voyager finds Neelix. Neelix leads them to the worst main aliens, except maybe the Ferengi in all of Star Trek, the Kazon. The Ferengi and... at least get better. <laughs> right, right. I mean, there's good so, Ferengi episodes. I don't know if there are a lot of good Kazon episodes. But... No. I, I mean, the, the one, the... The, the one with the season uh, Aaron finale? Eisenberg. Yeah, that one's okay. I think the one with Aaron Eisenberg's interesting too. But mm. uh, is he? He's a Kazon. He's a like a th- he yeah. plays a thirteen-year-old yeah. Kazon yeah, kid. Like juvenile right, Kazon. Right, right, right. The one that Chakotay meets. And... Uh huh. So I thought that oh, was an man. interesting one, but um... going back to the Okampa, I think they tried to make them as sorry and helpless and hapless as possible to 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 help. Um, give weight to that major decision Janeway has to make at the end, right? That's like, hey, these guys are... that. There is no... There is no iota of hope for them if she doesn't you know, take out that... Take out that array. So, but yeah, and they're, they're confusing as well. They they um, tell Balana and... and um, Kampa, sorry, no, Balana and Kim that they are, they're honored guests. But then they also tell them later on that, hey, by the way, you have a disease and it's to protect you from your from the rest of your species and, and you're going to die. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. And again, though, Comp, I've seen a bunch of like people from these other 50 ships, including the USS Equinox, by the way, die previously uh, on in their thing. It's kind of like traumatic. Uh, if you if you really think about it, and I don't think that's dealt with very much. Also, the Ocampo suck at building catwalks, but that's neither here nor there. We'll get to that when we talk about how. Chakotay I mean, that's gets why rescued. those, that's why that underground um, Ocampo movement started, right? They were just depressed at how badly the Ocampo were portrayed. <laughs> they build great escalators, though. Oh yeah. <laughs> but. Uh... I mean, it's clear to me that the TNG writers' room didn't have like a okay. Here's what can go wrong when you decide to create a major alien species like handbook, because number one on that was don't make them look hilarious, which is what the Kazon do. <laughs> they literally, and I am not kidding here, the Kazon headdresses incorporated heavy full pig ears. That's that stuff that's in the Kazon headdresses. It's pig ears. That have been like, well, at least like fake pig ears made of plastic that have been spray painted. Interesting. Yeah. They, they're, it's it's a very dystopian Mad Max type of um, portrayal, and and outside those one or two good episodes, it just gets worse and worse. And I mean, the Seska involvement again, spoiler there, but 
yeah bad people and badly badly costumed people <laughs> yeah they're kind of as max called them once when i spoke to him about this buffoons like <laughs> <laughs> they're just idiots <laughs> Uh, I mean, and by the way, the Voyager crew gets themselves disarmed by these buffoons very easily. Yeah. Uh, and and quick question here. So they are completely amazed with all the technological prowess that Voyager has, but somehow their ships in certain volume, and it's not like dozens of ships, it's just like maybe two, three of them kind of put Voyager in a difficult tactical position. I, I never quite, quite added that up, right? They can't, they can't uh, transport stuff. They can't replicate stuff, but um, they have they're good at combat. Power, yeah. yeah, they're good, yeah. good at space combat if, you know, when the odds are, in, it's not like a 10 to 1 odds. They can still pull their own. It, it just doesn't make any sense. It just felt, I, I always felt the Kazon just kind of came across as like the poor man's Klingons. Like, you know, I mean, it was like the Delta Quadrant Klingons, like not quite the Klingons, but, you know, I don't know. It just, it just felt, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the, there's the bones of a compelling thing there. Like there's, you know, they have different tribes and one tribe can, each tribe controls one resource. And so they maybe are a more conflict driven society where they steal from one another. Um, there's this hierarchical thing that we learned with their majes later. That word gets coined in this episode. But they just, I mean, they, they made them look so clownish and there were these inconsistencies with their technology. And I just don't think they were right as like the first major villains for Voyager uh, because of what, what you all just mentioned, how, how it just doesn't work that they're like this really threatening species, but they don't, they, they can't like find enough water to survive. Um, now, one of the things that happens when we meet the Kazon is we get introduced to, this is in between when we're getting introduced to Neelix and to Kess. And I wanted to ask you all about those two characters and maybe we can start, tackle them separately and then their relationship to one another as well. What'd y'all think of those two? I, so listeners, I just have to point out, you know, so we have show notes that, that Notch prepares and I'm looking at the show notes and for each character, there's like a little write up and some bullet points and it's like, Balana has a handful of bullet points, and then Tuvok has some bullet points, and Neelix has a couple, and then for Kess, it just says Kess. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing, right? I mean, I, I think it, I think I think it's actually showing us something that's true, you know? No, Kess is better than that. Come on, <laughs> Kess She's, is a, Kess yeah, is a character. I mean, they don't do a whole lot with her in this first episode, but man, Jennifer Lean has a beautiful voice. Like, I mean, anyway, so I know that's not about her character, but she just has a really beautiful speaking voice. So, I mean, it's it's extremely therapeutic. I agree. And it compliments Neelix, right? I don't know if they do that, that compliment well, where he's mm -hmm. like, he's just trying to get her out. And then he's like, we're, we're, we're done. We're leaving. And she's like, no, we must help these people. Um, she's kind of his moral compass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I really... I really like Neelix in this episode. I've liked him throughout. He's he's kind of the village clown or idiot and <laughs> all of that. But I, I don't know. He just pulls it off well. And I recently watched an episode where he's storytelling to the those Borg children. Mm -hmm. um, I, I liked it. I, I, just, yeah. I just liked all of it. Um, and I... I don't know if that means that we like characters like that who are goofy and clowny and that's not right. That's inappropriate. Or he 
just didn't pull that off well and that's why people don't like him as a character I'm, I'm, I'm confused on what was not right about Neelix and if my liking of him is also not right to be I honest th- I think what was not right about Neelix is that it's really gross um, how young Cass is supposed to be and how oh, not yeah, young Neelix sure. is so it just feels that feels like a really strange pairing I think that's part of it and I personally thought Neelix's character got much more interesting and I liked him more once Kess was out of the picture. Um, Cause the, the, the jealousy storylines like that, that came up mm. so much in connection with Kess and it was so tired. Like I, that is so, and that kind of even made that played into that whole gross dynamic of their relationship anyway. Um, but I, th- I mean, I, I think the, the other thing that happens here is he's shown as this like conniving guy who exploits his new friends to try and save his girlfriend and then wants to like peace out of there right away. And again, I can't they, they hadn't decided yet that he had this like heart of gold. He was just shown as kind of a funny scoundrel in this episode. And I, I also just I mean, for me personally, the makeup is just grating. I just he looks terrible and i i that's the problem i have with neelix throughout the show is that they just they went in a direction that makes him look really ugly for seven seasons and i don't like that at all and i think emily you're right on that like once kes in his relationship with kes is out of the picture neelix becomes more compelling especially when you put him up as a foil to tuvok we saw that in the tuvix episode mm-hmm. and i think that's some of the even in this episode that's some of yeah. the best material that they have is when Tuvok is in the bathroom. We see a bathroom, no toilet yet, but a bathroom. <laughs> I put that bathtub. in my notes, actually. I was like, Notch, it's a bathroom. <laughs> right? Uh, but we, we get that kind of back and forth between them. I just love his beaming in pose, by the way, where he's like, all right, take me, aliens, beam me up into your little sphere. Um, I, that, that was fantastic. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, I think I just grate on his appearance. Yeah, I I mean, you have that patchy costume and then the funny hair and then his feet. And I don't know, Nash, do you think they would you have preferred a better Neelix? And that was attempted in Duvix. What kind of Neelix would you have liked? Flocks. Let's put Mm. it that way. Which, by the way, Neelix's character in early versions of the script was called Felox. Bill, you nice. had something you wanted to add? Yeah, I, I was just gonna say I don't I don't really like Neelix as a character. I find him to be annoying, but I do I do think that the show is better for having him. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like without Neelix, it would. I mean, he had some levity and whatever, and so you know, as as an individual, I'm not a fan. But I think he, he has an important role to play. <clears throat> and I think Emily, you bring up a very interesting point on on the age difference, quote-unquote, between Ocampans and... I, I don't know, in terms of interspecial relationships and lifespans and all of that, how does that even work, right? Like, yeah. are, are they both in their young adult ages, even though they are, like, you know, one has lived, like, four times as longer than the other? It's an interesting topic that... It is. Voyager attempts to touch upon. I mean, even with the whole Tom and Kess thing in between, that's equally, once again, the gross Tom part, but it's kind of complicated, right? But Tom and Kess would be closer in age. Like, as far as, like, I think of Kess is kind of like 
18, 19, 20 is kind of the age I feel like they're, you know, because if you think about it, they basically yeah. just reduce, um, they divide Ocampin's age by 10, you know, like, so I think a right. two-year-old kind of equals a 20-year-old because they have a lifespan of like, what did they say, like nine. eight or nine years or something. So, um, so I kind of feel like you could have it correspond to her, her being like 20 or like almost 20 or something like that. But, um, and Neelix doesn't feel like a young adult to me. And he's well, not played by a young adult. I think that right. I think he's the oldest actor in the I see in the cast. So it, that's part it, of it, you know. It, and it. she was nineteen, I think, when they started the show. She was pretty young. Yeah, really. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, Jennifer Lean. Um, Maybe twenty. I think, but... I think that is the like issue here is that we never actually grapple with the fact that the Okampa have this tiny lifespan and what that means to them as a species. Like that's the, again, going back to the Okampa, that's the problem. Like they could have easily just fixed it by saying, you know, we're telepathic. So when our children are born, when they turn one years old, we like send them the brainwaves so that they're like adults. Like how do the Okampa like function? Because think about a nine year old child, right? Like, and how much like they understand about the world forget about their mental development even just the amount of like life experience they had at nine years old i lifted up rocks and tried to eat them i still hadn't like you know figured out i mean maybe i'm exaggerating a little bit i think that's a memory from when i was like two or three years old but still uh again cash should be lifting up rocks and eating them at like three years old or whatever and she knows all about the world and compassion and this and that and it just doesn't make any sense so um it's it's but kind of weird, it, and I know I'm. I'm just trying to say they're trying to they're trying to attempt something that is the exact opposite of of trills and you know hundreds of years of lifespan. And there's that one episode later on in Voyager where she's trying you know traveling back in time and some chronoton weird stuff is happening. Kess is traveling back in time, and they show like she's had I don't know if it's multiple relationships, but then she has kids and 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 grandchildren even. So I just find it. I'm not saying it's it's right. It's it's an interesting attempt at really short lifespans and how those can be sentient species. I don't think it's been done before or after. And uh, yeah, I, do, I just don't... I wish that they had dealt with that in, in a little bit more of a expository way in this episode, I guess. We, we should have learned a little bit more about it. Um, could have helped a little bit. But we should move on to talking about another relationship that gets formed within the Okambo world, which is Balana meeting... Kim. It's interesting because Balana is one of the first characters we meet. Also, I'll point out at this moment, this show opens with a scene that doesn't have a single white character in it. Robert yes. Beltran, Roxanne Dawson playing um, Balana Torres, Tim Russ playing Tuvok, and by the way, Tarek Egrin mm-hmm. playing Ayala, the only character other than the main characters who shows up both in this episode and the final episode of Voyager. He's a constant oh, background cool. character. He sometimes has lines that he says. Uh, and he definitely has major moments of Voyager that he's present for. Ayala. I noticed that in the that the opening scene had like every single one of the Maki um, actors was played by a person of color. But there was also this I was trying to there actually there was like some random white guy that shows up um, at the end of it who's like fixing. I can't remember. There was like one other random guy, but he wasn't featured as prominently. But then I also was like, so you're showing all the rebel characters that are like outside of the Starfleet norm. That's the crew that is made up of non-white people. You know, like, I just thought that was interesting, too. I was like, yeah, anyway. The um, 
so so we meet she's one of the first Roxanne Dawson's Valana is one of the first people that we meet but then she doesn't really show up and say anything to us until way late in the episode when she and Kim are having their little friendship as well and I wanted to ask how y'all felt about um Torres's character in this episode well it was so it was so clumsy it was like they just read like the casting side and that was it's like oh, I'm like half Klingon and half human and it's so confusing and then my two halves are like battling inside me, right? I mean, she literally almost says that out loud, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just seeing this recurring theme of people of of color or, you know, women, at least in pilots being portrayed as continuously frustrated and angry, whether it's Cisco or her, um, or yeah Kira. yeah so i don't know like um it's it just it just struck me like hey here's another one and with with this one actually roxanne dawson later said that they had no idea who the character was or she didn't mm-hmm. at least in this mm-hmm. when this episode was filmed so the, the the portrayal is also i think a little bit inconsistent and um doesn't have a ton of depth to it yet that isn't ex- exposition explicit as bill was saying just now well and she i think she has a better grasp of her character obviously as later se- you know later seasons so i end up really liking the character of valana as the series goes on i like how she calls harry starfleet i think that's kind of cool um, and he calls her maquia at one point mm-hmm, i've forgotten about mm-hmm. that and even something as small as that, they don't hold on to in future episodes. I feel like really Voyager, just just keep the little stuff from week mm-hmm. to week. I think it'd be fun for you, but they don't. I'm not, I'm not sure if I actually do vaguely remember um, her calling him Starfleet later on at some point. I think she does vaguely, every once vaguely. in a while. Yeah. Yeah, vaguely, but not the other way around for sure. Yeah. Um, did you all know that Harry Kim played clarinet at the Juilliard Youth Symphony? This dude is like really talented as a musician. Yeah. He was also like 50 most good looking people at some point in yeah. time. Yeah. Which is that, why that he wasn't into... fired. Yeah, from exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That. I read that right. Yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah, they let go of Jennifer Lean instead. Yeah. So they were, they were thinking about firing uh, Garrett Wong. To get in, to get in, um, um, seven or nine, they they had to let go of someone. Yeah, and I think I think he is again one of those characters where we get this strong sense of who he is. It's his first mission. He's like this really young dude who just doesn't know really what he's doing in terms of the military yet. And and I when he, when he has that line of like I got captured in my very first mission, like you really you know feel for the the guy. Um, and I think his relationship with Harry is very, or with Tom is very compelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so with Balana, but it's there, mm-hmm. which is nice. They're they're trying to make some of these pairings happen in terms of friendships. So, um, the one thing that I think I I need to express right now is that unfortunately something that is dealt very poorly with Harry Kim in future Voyager episodes is his Asian ancestry. Uh, it's he because is the Garrett Wong. Were idiots. Is, Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Garrett Wong is on the record saying that the writers didn't really care whether he was a, a Chinese character in his descent or Korean or mixed or whatever. In fact, at one point there was something he says something about ancient Chinese proverbs, and he went to Bran Braga and said like, "Hey, you know that Kim is a a Korean name, right?" I, I think it was like they just didn't. They just did, had no concept of the fact that. 
if you're going to name your character Harry Kim, he is most likely Korean. Like, you know, like they just didn't, that was so just not, no awareness. And, And that's really sad because, I mean, you know, it's again it just goes back to one of those things where you where you think um that this is a character who has such a compelling story that you can explore and a heritage that you can explore on the show and they mess it up again mm-hmm. and i think that's true for so many of these characters they're very compelling they're very compelling and we get less exploration of those characters whereas things ds9 characters aren't necessarily as compelling but they're explored in so much depth and development as the series goes on yeah. But um, what about the doctor? Finally, just just to kind of cap things off in terms of talking about the story, we I think he's the character who probably has the least development as this episode goes along, um, explicitly. But we do see a lot of strands of what he'll struggle with later through this mm-hmm. episode. Well, he's oppressed he's... big time, right? He gets shut oh, down yeah. like a couple of times <laughs> by yeah. Janeway, which I found extremely offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah. Please state the nature of the medical emergency. (laughs) I like that they had that line in the, you know, that kind of makes its way throughout the whole. But yeah, it did feel really jarring when she shut, like, or what what did she call it? Uh, I can't remember what her phrase was, but when she turned his program off, I was like, oh, that just, that doesn't feel right. (laughs) Nobody treats him as as a sentient being in this episode. Mm -mm. He's, uh... don't, don't they, like, later on, they, like, expand his compute resources or like mm-hmm. make him into a more sophisticated you know hologram. well they need him so, to run they need him to run a lot and i think that gives the uh, gives an avenue of him you know doing more i mean again he's he's one of my top two characters in star trek so mm-hmm. yeah, you know sure. one thing i noticed this is not necessarily pertaining to the doctor but i it was, it's actually more about paris um they, I actually found it interesting that um, Paris seems to be pretty at ease in sick bay. I don't know if you all noticed that, but he seemed yeah. to, he pretty easily jumped into being able to take care of things. And Harry's really like a fish out of water. He doesn't know what to do or what, what piece of equipment to hand the doctor. And, but Tom's just kind of going around doing it, which they established later. He had some medic training or something that yeah. made him, that's why they have him be kind of the nurse position in uh sick bay but they don't say that in the first episode so it's kind of interesting to see that the seeds for that were kind of planted in that first episode speaking of planting seeds i'll just mention one other thing which is that ensign carrie or i think he's lieutenant carrie is in this episode he's kind of the great value miles o'brien basically uh guy in the yellow (laughs) outfit with curly hair who's uh gets gets some a bit part and he will show up a whole bunch through voyager and then Spoiler, he is he has probably the dumbest death of anybody in the entirety of Star Trek, in my opinion. It's completely pointless why he dies. And then he doesn't in the sixth season of the show and he doesn't make it back to Earth. And it has bugged me for years. I don't even remember that. Uh, maybe one day we'll we'll cover the episode where he oh, where he passes. Gosh, but funny. I just saw the sixth season and I don't remember it. After, <laughs> so I, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, uh, any final thoughts on the story of this episode or the resolution? I mean, one thing we gotta discuss is is would you do what Janeway did, which is uh, violate the Prime Directive, 
destroy the array or would you fire up the beam and send your people back and let the let the Okampa do as they will? Moral dilemma, huh? Yeah. Hmm. It it seemed her logic seemed a little bit tenuous to me. It was like, oh, if if we don't blow up the array for sure, the Kazan will like take it. And for sure, they will have the ability to use it to like just commit genocide against the Okampa or something. And for sure, they will choose to do that. It didn't seem that clear to me. I mean, it's a, it's a TV show, right? I get it. But it, um, it seemed to me that there might have been a, a third option or another way to handle that. <clears throat> yeah, so I think it's it's all down to timing, right? There, in a few hours, Tuvok can, can send Voyager back home. The Kazon are loading, uh, sorry, there's lots of reinforcements coming if we were to believe that leader dude, right? That Maj or whoever. And so the avenue for Janeway is, is there a way for her to keep that station from not getting flooded with the Kazons who may or may not figure out how to disable the, the whatever, the shield around the Akampan underground terrain um, and or maybe start firing at them and killing them all? And is that... is are those two or three hours enough? And can she stay in the fight till then or go somewhere and, and, and have that stuff happen? So it's, it's not as simple as destroy the station um, and let the Ocampa survive because they're, they're kind of in trouble no matter what, right? Like they're, they're going to stop getting power supply in, in three to four years and, and there's all, already ways to get in there and, and all of that. So... I think you're right. I mean, I agree with you, Bill. I think there could have been a way out there um, in, in not destroying the array and and not having the Kazon completely annihilate the Okampa either, even if the array is not destroyed. I'll, I'll stick my neck out and say that I would have taken the array back. Like, there's no way I would have destroyed it. Like, I think it was a dumb decision. <laughs> I think I think the Okapo screwed no matter what you did, and I think it's um, it was a bit short sighted to 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 do that. And I think that the 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 story this pilot should have, and this is this is going back to my strange new take at the beginning. This is the thing that really I think I have defended in the past, and this time I was just like, I can't defend it anymore. This wasn't the reason that Voyager gets stranded wasn't written well. Yeah, I agree. The, the caretaker himself, right? Sporocystine being omniscient, intergalactic traveler, spent many years trying to find a mate. Why didn't he invest in 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 making the Yokampans more self-sustainable, right? Like or do that in parallel. They kind of just ran out of time in hindsight. Well, and then don't you, you're also set up your captain for being the reason you're stranded in the Delta Quadrant rather than some other, you know, thing that's outside of their control. So, and they don't, they don't treat it that way though, throughout the course of the series, you know, there's not really blame placed on her in that moment. Balana's like, what the hell? (laughs) You're letting her do this, you know, but no one else really, really does anything about it. Yeah. And I just... She just why doesn't that guilt? Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was just gonna say, why doesn't Shakode be like, "Yo, what you doing?" And she's like, "She's the captain." Yeah, no, <laughs> she's not. Not your captain. You're the captain. And why are you okay with this? Like, mm-hmm. 
She she uh, does carry that guilt later on in other seasons. Um, she does bring it up with Tuvok and Chakotay at times, like, hey, you know, that's what happened. I don't remember the uh, the specific instances, but she does carry the guilt of that decision herself specifically. Yeah. I don't think the crew potentially blames her. But uh, finally, I will just add that I was mistaken earlier. Lieutenant Carey died in Friendship One, which is the twenty first episode of the seventh season, I believe. It, I know it's the seventh season. I forget what if it's uh, twenty one or twenty or something like that. Anyway, so that's even more. That's even sadder. He makes it closer. even closer to getting home, and they kill him. Well, I feel yeah. relieved that I, I. That's why I didn't remember it in the sixth season. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway. Well, let's let's any final reflections on this episode or on Voyager as a series based on this episode. I will just make a quick call out about Duvok. He's he's my favorite Vulcan. Sorry, he's he's my he's yeah. more favorite to me nah, than a, than Spock. He's a, he's a good Vulcan. I, I just love his. I don't know. There's some comic clips that I've seen over the last few decades, but the way he's sort of like you know acts or or portrays getting shot or falling down is just amazing he's he's such an over actor there and that's hilarious to me there's <laughs> there should be a compilation of how Tuvok like you know portrays um getting hit in pain um all of that it's, it's amazing tim ross is an extremely talented actor and a massive practical joker and there are legendary <laughs> stories of the jokes he, he would play um on on the voyager set Ethan Phillips is also a little bit of a jokester. So, but yeah, 100% with you. Strongest Vulcan in Star Trek, if you ask me. And it was totally Tuvok masquerading as a human on the bridge of the Enterprise C in Star Trek Generations. Yeah, it is the same character. <laughs> um, or B, Enterprise B in Generations. B, B, that's right, yeah. that's right. Um, I, I'm glad that my first introduction to Voyager wasn't Caretaker. Because Voyager is what got me into Star Trek. The first episode I watched was actually, uh, I believe it was Juggernaut. And then the second episode I watched was Someone to Watch Over Me. And the combination of those two uh, 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 character-centric, almost horror-based Balana Torres episode and then a rom- romance-based Doctor and Seven of Nine episode is what compelled me to watch Voyager. I think if I had watched Caretaker, I... It, it's, it doesn't have those like deeper moments. It's just like Michael Piller wanted it to be. It's an action adventure romp. And I don't think it would have compelled me to become a Trekkie because of its lack of depth. So, yeah. I'll put that that way. All right. Well, why don't we stick our necks out and give this episode a strange new rating? What y'all got for me? The cat has opinions. I know, I say my my cat has opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I really liked it, you guys. I just thought it was, like, this is not being, like, very, like, critical. Um, I just, like, really enjoyed the experience of watching it. (laughs) And uh, so, I don't know. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. That's great. I will give it... um, a nine out of ten, actually nine, um, water canisters, <laughs> um, out of ten. Yeah, I, again, Voyager is the first series I saw in turn, so biased a little bit there. But I, I do feel as as we all mentioned, the character introductions were good. Um, there was a good pace to it, a good problem solving angle. 
Um, yeah, I and and the whole portrayal of being far from home and then having to work your way back. Um, I don't remember watching Caretaker and probably saw another Voyager episode before Caretaker, so I already knew that they were far from home. But I can only imagine Emily how it would have felt right at the end of it. Uh, be like, oh wow, they are actually not getting home. Um, I don't know if you felt that that was always going to slap back into place, but then you were shocked. I, I like that that twist. Well, you know, so I was going to, I would give it a four out of five, except for Tom Paris. So it's getting a 3.75 out of five. Um, because I think it's better than the TNG's um, pilot in that. I, I mean, you want to, I wanted to watch more because you want to, like, I remember being like, oh, I, I want to see how they how they get home or like how how this is going to progress. So they, as far as and I, I've realized I'm I think I'm definitely grading these based on their um, success as a pilot, mm-hmm. which is why I gave uh, Deep Space Nine such a high score because it just I mean I was totally compelled by that um, pilot. But I think I, I think I was I was compelled and I am compelled, you know, to watch more about how Voyager makes their way through the Delta Quadrant. And I like I like Captain Janeway. Um, so, you know, it's good when you like the captain right off the bat. But, I you know, I didn't like Captain Picard right off the bat um, when I'm watching Encounter at Farpoint, you know, so got to yeah. give Voyager a higher score for that. It's interesting, you know, listening to your ratings, I think it's made me reflect on how when we do podcasts about these, it's fun to talk about sometimes the negative things, but we don't bring up as many of the good things um, as we discuss. And I I certainly, just for myself, that's one of my faults. I want to make jokes, I want to have fun, and that's easier to do when things are wrong, like the Kazon. I think there's, there's... Many, many parts of this episode I really do like. I think the setup is very good. And I, I do like the set, except for that final scene that actually strands them. I like all the other setup in here. And I think if I was if I am grading this apart from the Voyager series, because I think the Voyager series fumbles that setup real bad. Um, I think I, I really like the setup and I would grade it very highly, like maybe even a 9 or out of 10 or maybe a 9.5 even, because that like final piece, okay, I can just set it aside. But the plot of this episode, the Okampa, the Kazon, I just, I, it's just not something that like kind of grips me as much. Um, so that's the part where it's like a 5 out of 10 almost for me. So I think I split the difference between those two and go with a 6.5, where I think it's 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 better than... Um, encounter at Farpoint, it's better than anything from the, the pilots from the TNG or TOS eras. And it's not necessarily a bad episode. It's just that I don't feel like I want to go back and watch, especially the second half of this episode very much. I might put on the first half to see how they introduce the characters, but then, you know, I've got what I need and I can move on. Um, so, so that's why I, I go with a 6.5 where it's not bad, but it's not kind of excellent for me either. So you're weighing the five a little more than the nine point five and pulling it closer to the five. Yeah, yeah. I think I think there's more of the story elements in this episode than the setup elements. So I, um, I think I think that's where I go. But um, with that, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Bill, and thank you, Rudy, for being here today to talk about um, Caretaker. We are going to come back next week to discuss the. Uh, pilot of Enterprise, Broken Bow. We'll see where our hearts take a loss. Uh, We're going to have you record that. 
<laughs> we should switch Josh. our theme. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Rudy and... Uh, not Rudy. <laughs> Dina and Max. I'll, take... <laughs> I'll thank you twice, Rudy. You're just such a great person to have here. But thank you, Dina and Max, wherever y'all are. Uh, they've let me know that it might be a little while before they return to our podcast because of some uh, busyness. Uh, nothing tragic, just busy lives. Uh, so so we'll see when they return to our pod in the future. Uh, thank you, Jishnu Guha, for you recording our theme Adam. music. Oh. Yeah, and we were going to thank you, but you have to thank Adam before that. <laughs> no, I'm not going to. Adam Adam corrected me that one time when I forgot about TNG, so, or the animated series. So I, I, I've decided to, to forget Never him. thank him again. <laughs> no, nah, thank you, Adam. I miss you. I hope Thanks, you come Notch. Back Thanks, Notch. Of Thanks. course, of course. Uh, thank you, Jishnu Guha, for recording our theme music, which uh, unfortunately starting next week we're going to replace with Emily singing Where My Heart Is Gonna Take Me <laughs> <laughs> from Enterprise. <laughs> and special thanks to Gull Evek, played by Richard Poe in TNG, in DS9, in Voyager. Uh, he is the compelling reason that the Maquis entered the Badlands. If it wasn't for Gull Evek, none of this would have happened. But how much credit does he get? Zero. Except now, where he gets special thanks from me. All right, dear <laughs> listener, we'll we'll return next week to discuss Broken Bow. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.